0: Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz.
1: And I'm Abram Van
0: And this is Poetry for All.
1: In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time.
0: Today, we are delighted to be joined by special guest Chris Hanlon to read a section of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Christopher Hanlon is professor of U.S. literature at Arizona State University. He is the author of two books, and he's currently the editor of the new Oxford Handbook to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Chris's essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, American Literature, American Literary History,
1: many other
0: <laughs> journals as well. Put shortly, he knows what he is talking about, and we are delighted to have him talking with us today. Welcome, Chris.
2: Thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Abram. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I love this podcast. I love what you're doing.
1: Uh, well, we're so happy to have you here. Would you be willing to read from, from Leaves of Grass for us?
2: Oh, thank you. With pleasure. A child said, What is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white, canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff. I give them the same. I receive them the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Tenderly will I use you, curling grass. It may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be you are from old people or from offspring taken. It may be if I had known them, I would have loved them soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are the mother's laps. This grass is very dark to be from the white heads of old mothers, darker than the colorless beards of old men, dark to come from under the faint red roof of mouths. Oh, I perceive, after all, so many uttering tongues, and I perceive they do not come from the roofs of mouths for nothing. I wish I could translate the hints about the dead young men and women, and the hints about old men and mothers, and the offspring taken soon out of their laps. What do you think has become of the young and old men? And what do you think has become of the women and children? They are alive and well somewhere. The smallest sprout shows there is really no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it and ceased the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward. Nothing collapses. And to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> Whitman! Oh, my God. That was the best reading <laughs> I have ever heard of that section of <laughs> Leaves of Grass. Well,
2: he just he just carries you, doesn't he? I mean, he's just there's something about the rhythm of his lines that just it bec- makes, makes your voice go incantatory and both solemn and celebratory. And, <laughs> I mean, there's just so much in
1: him. I mean, I think that's one place to just start. I mean, this the, the rhythm of these lines is this incredible kind of poetic, meditative structure that carries you along. And right. I think there is something that, that takes you off guard when you look at this on the page. You think, this doesn't look like poetry to me. I don't see any rhymes right. in here. I don't see a standard meter. I don't see a standard form. But that's part of the point, right? That's part of what his project was actually all about.
2: You know, when you think about what it must have been like to look at Whitman on the page for the first time, it it, it must have seemed strange and revolutionary. And I'm sure similar questions arose in Whitman's contemporaneous readers. Questions like, What is this? <laughs> is this poetry? It's it's operatic. Readers in 1855 were used to a very different experience of poetry, and one of Whitman's major influences was the American essayist, lecturer, and poet uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote in an essay called "The Poet," and this is this is before right Whitman comes on scene. He wrote about what he imagined American poetry might become, and at one point Emerson Emerson writes, "For it is not meters, but a meter-making argument that makes a poem a thought so passionate and alive." that like the spirit of a plant or an animal, it has an architecture of its own and adorns nature with a new thing." Now he's not saying, you know, let's get rid of meter, but he's imagining meter as emerging out of argument, meter that sort of follows the message in a way that apparently Emerson didn't think American poetry was, was yet achieving. And and it is impossible to overstate the effect that Emerson had on Whitman. When Whitman first published uh, the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855, he sent Emerson a copy. Like, he didn't know Emerson. He just he just sent it to him. And the remarkable thing, you know, given Emerson's own poetry and and that in many ways it's more metered and more conventional, is that Emerson seems to have recognized immediately uh, Whitman's importance. He he wrote a letter back to this unknown poet. Assuring him, this is a quote from the letter, he said, I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift of leaves of grass. I find it the most extraordinary piece of will and wisdom that America has yet contributed. (laughs) Which is...
1: there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: My understanding of Whitman is from myself as a poet, so... When I was first introduced to Whitman, it wasn't in a literature class. It was in a creative writing class. And the professor in- situated Whitman as part of a long big prophetic tradition, right? So she started at like the book of Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible and went all the way up through Whitman and then to Allen Ginsberg. And I feel like what you're doing is describing that 19th century moment. But I wonder if Whitman was looking into the deep past to understand what his literary influence might have been.
2: You know, you've got me thinking Joanne, about the the preface to Leaves of Grass. I mean, like you know, Whitman. So, so Leaves of Grass, right? This this mm-hmm. section we've just read comes from this poem, Leaves of Grass, which is, again, the first edition is 1855, and and Whitman regarded this as his life's work. It went through five or six editions, depending upon how you count, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Whitman kept adding to it, changing it in various ways. It evolved. But at the first edition, he attached this preface, and there he, he thought of himself as someone who was changing everything through poetry. He thought of himself mm. as, um, among other things, helping Americans to realize, for example, the promise of democracy, which, you know, and you know, we could talk about Whitman's politics during a time of, of political and social division, and, and there are certainly many scholars who have written about Whitman's politics, but at a very basic level, he imagined that leaves of grass was going to help Americans to embrace one another <laughs> and to, hmm. to love one another. He thought that the remarkable thing about American democracy is this unique capacity of the American people to love one another across vast distances, across time, just because they're all Americans, right? And, and there's this patri- there's definitely this patriotic, some might even say jingoistic, you know, aspect. Then there's also something, uh, infuriating or appalling about, about Whitman conceiving of Americans in their ability to love one another at a time of slavery, right? There's something, there's something perhaps willfully obtuse about that. But Mm -hmm. as I say, this notion of the poet as a prophet who kind of changes everything, um, is definitely a part of Whitman.
1: Yeah or you might say obtusely optimistic. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that he was anti-slavery and then of course there there's scholars debate exactly what his politics were on that and exactly how it lined up with abolitionism but but he was anti-slavery and I wonder if he was kept he, he wrote into a future that wasn't yet. So he both saw what he thought was the promise of American democracy in action, but also hoped that that action would take place in the future. Um, I wonder if it was a, a, as much a hopeful kind of poetics as it was a reflective one.
2: What what seems to motivate Whitman most in 1855, and certainly later in the third edition of 1860-61, um, is what he sees slavery doing to the country in terms of the, the breakdown of the of the union. Um, he's he, he views America as this greatest poem, this incredible advent in human history. And he's watching it come apart, right? Um, and he's, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's not only the Civil War, right? The 1850s are a time of incredible strife, a time of intense division, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so Whitman's yeah. both, yeah. yeah, obtusely optimistic and really torn up. About what he sees happening to the country.
0: So, for all of this talk that we have about this prophetic voice, this authoritative, grand, uh, dynamic voice, the first line of the poem reads A child said, What is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands how could i answer the child i do not know what it is any more than he and then there's a series of phrases and this is where the poetry begins with the patterns of repetition i guess i guess i i guess it's the handkerchief of the lord i guess the grass is itself a child this um and it keeps trying to make some attempt at an answer what an interesting way to begin yeah. a poem uh, with this tentativeness which actually earns my trust as a reader do you know what I mean
2: this this section of leaves of grass opens with a scene of instruction and you're right far from being authoritative or that kind of you know prophetic I Walt Whitman kind of voice that that he often does cop at other points in leaves of grass he's perplexed and there's a modesty here um, the grass becomes poetic and meaningful as the speaker sums up his own perplexity and and the, the, the multitude of guesses he has about what grass is and what it
0: means. And as he does this guessing, almost halfway through the poem, he comes to a realization through that wondering about what it is. And he says, and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Oh, my yeah. God. First of all, that language of it seems to me, which then later in the poem gets picked up with, I perceive, I perceive, right. Um, right. this notion that grass has become like an apparition to him. It's, the, it's been met- metamorphosed yeah. in an almost Ovidian kind of way into something entirely other. And then from there, it really picks up momentum, right?
2: I think what you're picking up on there, Joanne, like that moment where there's a breath. I mean, I experience it like like the caesura of a Saxon line of poetry or like the Volta of a sonnet where everything changes yeah. and everything becomes very still yeah. all of a yes. sudden. And for me, the, the first half is defined by the repetition of I guess, I guess, I guess. So there's that perplexity and that, you know... Trying to kind of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And maybe grass is a handkerchief. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a hieroglyphic. And I think what happens after that moment, that pivot that you're identifying there is that the process through which grass starts to generate meaning is much more literal and much more connected with the, with what Whitman imagines to be the biological reality of grass that it makes us into fertilizer, right? That It transpires from us. In imagining these graves beneath the surface of the ground and the grass sprouting from it, right? Like something is happening there that connects us all.
0: As you say, that one line is by itself in open space. And then the next line reads, tenderly will I use you. Curling grass. It may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be you are from old people or from offspring taken it may be if I had known them, I would have loved them soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are, the mother's laps, the way he uses the connective tissue of this stanza to just fuse all of these things into the human experience and relates it to the grass. As you say, we are the fertilizer for this incredibly beautiful metaphorical thing. Wow.
1: In all of these things at the beginning of the poem, there's this sense of I'm trying to hear the message of the grass. And that allows the the image uh, in the second half of the poem to come out, um, which at first kind of threw me, dark to come from under the faint red roofs of mouths. And I think, what is he talking about there? But in a certain sense, what I think he's imagining is the grass as a as, as certain sense not just the beautiful uncut hair of graves, but the tongues speaking of all of those who have died and gone before. And
2: there's there's so much there in terms of, you know, the punning and the playfulness of leaves of grass. I mean, the very title of the book, right? He's like, like the, the, the literal leaves of these plants, these, these blades of grass, are akin to the pages of this book, right? Both of them have messages to impart. This uh, matter of death, too, uh, I want to speak to, the way these bodies beneath the ground are speaking to us are, are themselves to be translated. You know, in, in Leaves of Grass, Whitman finally, in the in the first 1855 edition, imagines his own death. The poem ends with Whitman addressing his reader directly, and he says, "When, when, when you look for me, right? When you when you need me, look for me under your boot soles." He, the final line of the poem is, "I stop somewhere waiting for you." The first line is, "I celebrate myself." I sing myself. The first line of Leaves of Grass is I. The last word is you. Leaves of Grass is the bridge between I and you.
0: And then he gets toward the end of the poem and its final gestures. It's just extraordinary. I wish I could translate the hints about the dead young men and women and the hints about old men and mothers and the offspring taken soon out of their laps. What do you think has become of the young and old men? And what do you think has become of the women and children? What does it mean for him to shift that mode of address? This is, it's just magic no. to me. I, I don't know how <laughs> how no. he makes so many rhetorical moves in this poem, but why does he do it and what does it achieve?
2: No one does this like Whitman. Right? Like <clears throat> No one is able to use the second person in a way that... I mean, just this reader finds it, uh, finds himself utterly drawn in. You know, there, 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 there's a moment in the poem that later was titled Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Originally it was titled Sundown Poem, where Whitman just describes himself, you know, riding the ferry with commuters across, um, uh, you know, across the river t- toward Manhattan. And he, he's talking about, you know, what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. And then he addresses the reader and, and he sort of says to us, you know, you know this experience, you, you, you know what it feels like to, to ride a boat across the river. You've, you've observed what the sun looks like reflecting off the water and that connects us. And then he has this re- remarkable line where he says, I considered long and seriously of you before you were ever born. And, you know, I think you're right here. We're moving from the befuddlement and the perplexity of a speaker you know, what some would call the father of modern poetry, right? The inventor of free verse, you know, Walt Whitman. And now suddenly he's turning the questions back to us and saying, what do you think? Yeah, What do you think has become of the young and old men? What do you think has become of the women and children? There's something so arresting and intimate about that maneuver.
1: And I think it's worth dwelling on that openness and that invitation and that intimacy that he enables in his poetry through the you, because as you say, you... The second person, it it doesn't usually work out well. (laughs) Whether it's a novel (laughs) or an essay or a poem, when people start to address you directly, I'm often turned off because I think, you don't know me. You know Why are you telling me this? Or people say, you probably think, and I think, I don't think that at all. Why why are you saying this? It's so hard to pull off, but I I do think you're right that, that Whitman pulled it off in magical ways. When I read you and Whitman, I think, I want. I, I feel a kind of connection, which is precisely what he wanted to produce right. in his poetry. This sense of contact between him and reader, even if the reader wasn't yet born. I guess to to round way back
2: to like you know the question Joanne was bringing us to, that's part of this eradication of death that's happening here, right? I mean, Whitman sort of thinks that if I can speak across centuries to to Joanne Dias. And and take yeah. her breath away, <laughs> or make her breathe with me, right? To use to use line length and to use these catalogs of of modifiers and nominals and clauses in order to have an effect upon her breathing. <laughs> yeah. Then there really is no death, right? Then 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 then, then that kind of contact subsists mm-hmm. and connects us. As I said earlier, Whitman lived in a time of intense disunion. Americans mm-hmm. were killing each other. And, and right, they were killing each other in Kansas, and they would kill each other during the Civil War itself. There's this grand hope in him, and this sort of insistence that you know Americans love one another, and Americans are connected in ways that yeah. members of other bodies politic cannot be. I I think I find myself thinking of Whitman as uh, a challenge for us, right? Uh, a yeah. a, a Whit- Whitman Whitman. Asks us to find the ways in which we connect to re- to recall um, the ways in which, really, just as human beings, we are and ought to be drawn to one another. But certainly, it's you know, w- Whitman is also about where to find that connection and that contact in times of intense division.
0: As I listen to both of you talking about the fragility of the nation, in which. Whitman produced these poems, the fragility of our own contemporary moment, it makes me think about something that Abram said almost two years ago. Now, I remember one of the first poems we discussed together was one by Phyllis Wheatley. Mm. And Abram asked a simple question, which was, what if Phyllis Wheatley is writing in a subtly sort of ironic way to a future audience that does not yet exist? and uh it was such a simple question and i've thought about that question with almost every poem i have read since like what if it isn't just a poem for the po- for the reader who can read it today but uh, for a reader who could exist centuries from now mm-hmm. right and um there's a way in which that grass dispersing in broad and narrow zones is like this poem just ebbing and flowing with time but then Uh, if that's true, that also makes the poem feel aspirational to me, Mm -hmm. right? That if we can use his incantatory rhetoric, if we can sort of just follow the ebb and flow of giving the same, receiving the same, and all of these beautiful rhythms and repetitions that he's offering to us, maybe someday it could become so. And then the way he lands at the end of this poem is just so remarkable. Look at how declarative and confident and hopeful the poem is, right? They So though when he asked that question, what do you think has become of the young and old men, the women and children? They are alive and well somewhere. The smallest sprout shows there is really no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it and cease the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward. Nothing collapses, and to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> what could you say after such yeah. a thing? But what does it mean for him to land on that moment in the poem?
2: I think that this is a, a key teaching of Whitman's that he is sort of what that he is sort of appropriating in some ways from American transcendentalism, the notion that there is nothing but change and there is no such thing as loss. And that most of what we take as reality, especially those parts of reality that are permeated with division, like life versus death, black versus white, you know, Southern versus Northern, Republican versus Democrat, <laughs> um, are illusions, right? And that those divisions are human constructs and sometimes they're useful and sometimes they aren't but they are illusory and that the only thing that's real is what is now right the sense that everything you need everything is in this moment if you can just get out of your own way because the the problem is that we've all become extremely <laughs> adept at distancing ourselves from the plenitude and the richness and the immediacy of tingling first person experience when that child thrusts into our faces full of grass hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, with all of that said, Chris, would you be willing to read this poem for us again?
2: I would love to. Thank you. And thank you both for inviting me to this conversation. A child said, what is the grass fetching it to me with full hands? How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white. Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff, I give them the same, I receive them the same. And now, it seems to me, the beautiful uncut hair of Graves. Tenderly will I use you, curling grass. It may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be you are from old people, or from offspring taken. It may be if I had known them, I would have loved them, soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are the mother's lapse. This grass is very dark to be from the white heads of old mothers, darker than the colorless beards of old men, dark to come from under the faint red roofs of mouths. Oh, I perceive, after all, so many uttering tongues, and I perceive that they do not come from the roofs of mouths for nothing. I wish I could translate the hints about the dead young men and women. And the hints about old men and mothers and the offspring taken soon out of their laps. What do you think has become of the young and old men? And what do you think has become of the women and children? They are alive and well somewhere. The smallest sprout shows there really is no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it. And ceased the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward, nothing collapses, and to die is different from what anyone supposed, and luckier.
1: So good.
0: Thank you, Chris, uh, for your insights in that reading. To learn more about Walt Whitman, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm.
1: And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Chris.
2: Thank you both so much.